Hi, my name is Brian. Welcome to the first episode in the podcast, Homo Deus, Humanity's Evolution from Social Institutions to World Peace. In this podcast, we talk about plague, famine, and war. It sounds pretty bad. Could there be anything else that has caused humanity even more suffering than these three? In chapter 1, Harari claims that humanity has reigned in famine, plague, and war. These problems haven't been completely solved, of course, but we have transformed them from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war, and we usually succeed in doing so. Today, for the first time in history, more people die from eating too much than from eating too little. More people die from old age than from infectious diseases. And more people commit suicide than are killed by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. These are good points that Harari makes, and I mostly agree. But given that this podcast has world peace in its title, we certainly need to examine Harari's claims about war. In the past, Harari notes that humanity has long assumed wars were a given. Whatever plans were made, there always had to be allowances for war. But today, wars are disappearing. He bases this claim primarily on two things. Firstly, the worldwide mortality rate from wars is lower on a per capita basis in the last 70 years than in previous centuries. And secondly, War has become simply inconceivable to a growing segment of humankind. I find Harari's statements problematic. Certainly, the mortality rate is lower than in the recent past, and war is inconceivable to some people, so I agree with this, but does that really mean war is disappearing for good? Firstly, I would say there just isn't really enough data to know. Even in human terms, 70 years is a very short period of time. And there have been periods of relative peace in the past where we might have claimed the same thing. For example, during the Roman Empire there were extended periods of peace. It is often referred to as the Pax Romana, or the Roman Peace. During this period, war was just something done on the fringes of the empire, and international travel became common. How do we know our peace is permanent, and not just a temporary, intermediate period that we have seen so many times before in history. And you should note that even during this 70-year period, we've had close calls on wars that could have mostly obliterated civilization, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's true that the per capita deaths are down, but the total number of people who have died in war during this period is high, higher than almost any other time in history. This divergence between the per capita number and the total number points to massive population growth. Our society has changed dramatically in the past 70 years and in the past 200. Maybe the much denser populations and more sophisticated technology just means that the big wars are less frequent but more deadly when they do occur. To me, this is just as reasonable a conclusion as the one Harari makes. 
Even though war may seem inconceivable to some people, the reality is, inconceivable things like this happen all the time. A few years ago, I read Nicholas Nassim Taleb's book, The Black Swan. Taleb grew up in Beirut. To his community, civil war in Beirut was inconceivable. And once it started, it was inconceivable that it wouldn't be over very shortly. After all, Beirut was the Paris of the Middle East. But civil war went on for years, and Beirut was never the same. Nobody talks about Beirut being the Paris of the Middle East today. Taleb's book was about how this kind of thing happens over and over again in history. People tend to overestimate the permanence of the small piece of time and space they know. But these beliefs are regularly subject to disruption. Harari makes the point that China has greatly prospered by cooperating with Silicon Valley instead of invading it. So why would they invade it? What would there be to gain? I agree that this dynamic is partially new. On the other hand, England greatly prospered from international trade with its peers in Europe during the Industrial Revolution. But this didn't stop World War I, World War II, or other wars from happening. Indeed, we are seeing now that a battle for tech supremacy is causing a rift between Silicon Valley and China. Perhaps war between China and the United States isn't as inconceivable today as it was just a few years ago when Harari wrote his book. Also, resources are still scarce, and some resources may become more scarce in the future. For example, maybe fresh water. It is easy to imagine how this shift in resource availability could destabilize politics and result in war. It should also be remembered that the motivation for war is often not rational. Harari highlights an example in his book of Italy fighting against the Austria-Hungarian Empire, even though they had no hope of winning. The more lives they lost in the futile war, the more they felt compelled to keep on fighting so that our boys don't die in vain. And I'm particularly concerned about the problem of growth. Harari discusses growth in various places in his book, and notes how all governments are committed to growth, and that if growth ever stops, society will collapse. Climate change and potential ecological collapse are natural outcomes of unlimited growth. These issues will lead to huge pressures over the next few decades, and this could lead to widespread war. But even if our problems never catch up with us, and we manage to outrun them with increasing knowledge and technology, the accelerating pace of change on its own could surely lead to instability. War could become more likely as various actors struggle to gain an upper hand or avoid losing their upper hand in a situation of quick change. Even if war is truly inconceivable or impossible today, when the world looks totally different in 20 years, maybe war becomes a lot more conceivable. In summary, I am very thankful that I live in a world where so many people do not suffer from war, famine, or plague like we used to a hundred years ago. I gratefully acknowledge that progress has been made, especially on famine and pandemics, and that I have personally benefited from it. This is something worth remarking on, and I am glad Harari does it. I also appreciate his desire to motivate us to keep on working to resolve these problems. But the fact that the per capita 
death rate from war is down in the past 70 years does not convince me that we have defeated war. For war to be defeated, I think we need a much more fundamental peace, where people and countries see mutual benefit in a much broader way, and life within countries is just and fair for all residents. As long as we are staring down several fundamental issues like climate change that could cause our society to collapse and remain locked in a struggle against each other to gain the upper hand, it is much more likely that we will descend into world war again at some point than we somehow manage to indefinitely restrain ourselves. I believe war can be defeated, but this is not what it looks like. In the second half of the chapter, Harari argues that humanity's next targets are likely to be immortality, happiness, and divinity, and that we will now aim to upgrade humans into gods and turn homo sapiens into homo deus. And he acknowledges that we've always sought immortality, happiness, and divinity, as best we could. For example, immortality through winning a great war, or writing a great symphony, or just having children. But what is different now is that we can pursue them with new technologies that make new realities possible. Death and unhappiness are now being pursued as technical problems to be overcome with genetic engineering, biochemistry manipulation, regenerative medicine, and nanotechnology. With regard to happiness, Harari describes how human happiness as the sole purpose of life has now become a kind of default worldview, and that we think of it as a collective project. However, he notes how the enormous increase in GDP has only led to very limited gains in our happiness. There seems to be a glass ceiling on our happiness. This ceiling is not too mysterious, though, as it serves an evolutionary purpose. Our unhappiness is a necessary condition to motivate us to keep on struggling to acquire food and mates, which enables us to survive. The pleasures and joys we experience are transient by design. He gives the example of an imaginary squirrel from long ago who experiences everlasting bliss after eating a single nut, and shortly thereafter the squirrel dies because he didn't do the things necessary to survive, like eating more nuts. Harari goes on to describe the various ways we are attempting to adjust our biochemistry, effectively rigging the system to achieve lasting contentment. Examples include prescription drugs, like Ritalin, illegal drugs, and possibly coming soon, direct electrical stimulation to the appropriate spots in the brain. He states that altering our biochemistry is the only way to break through the glass ceiling and achieve lasting contentment. That being said, another potential option he gives is the way proposed by the Buddha, reducing our craving for pleasant sensations through training and not allowing them to control our lives. However, he points out, people are much more interested in the biochemical solution than in the solution proposed by Buddha. I agree with Harari, and I would like to call out a couple of additional points. Firstly, I'd like to talk about our desires. The French scholar and literary critic René Girard has noted that our desires are based on imitation. He calls it mimetic desire. Mimetic desire helps us learn, and we try to be like our parents or other adults, 
and it helps us do the things necessary for survival, like collecting nuts. But it does lead to conflict, as we always want what others have. No matter what we have, we aren't happy, because we want what someone else has. It's not that our desires direct us to do what we need to do to survive and pass on our genes, and then are satisfied. No, our desires keep on burning long after we have what we need. This forms a psychological barrier to happiness. As Rari points out in his book, our desires are based on expectations. And where do we get these expectations from? Mainly from what we see others having. There is also a biological barrier to happiness. As discussed by Harari, our happiness is based on biochemistry, and biochemistry can only be altered in two ways, by outside manipulation, drugs and electrodes, or by training, as in the way of the Buddha. The quick fix of manipulation is obviously popular because it is easy, but I see at least two drawbacks to manipulation. It could put people in the same position as that blissful squirrel, leading to their death or disability. But even if the drugs or electrodes get precise enough to avoid these consequences, they are a shortcut around people facing their issues. And maybe even more importantly, they are a shortcut around people facing our collective issues. Perhaps we as a species will be like the squirrel who experienced perpetual bliss. That is, our technology and drugs may make us happy enough that we do not do the things we need to do to ensure our survival, such as addressing climate change. Television alone, while it hasn't delivered on happiness, it has materially tipped the scales such that we are so entertained we don't focus on our issues. To resolve our collective issues, like climate change, our desires need to be fundamentally redirected. And to me at least, training seems like a more promising strategy than manipulation. I acknowledge getting people excited about this training is a challenge, but if the evolutionary situation for Homo sapiens becomes more adverse, I think people will become a lot more interested. Mimetic desire is why famine, plague, and war are not the worst threats faced by humanity. Internal community violence has always been the worst threat, Famine only threatens the human community periodically, but internal violence is a daily threat. Many people listening to this podcast will have never experienced famine, but all will have experienced tensions, violence, and strong feelings of wanting revenge, which had the potential to escalate. These violent feelings and experiences are present with us on a daily basis. This conflict is usually held in check by our social institutions, such as the police, judiciary, government, corporations, and religious institutions. Together, these institutions create a set of rules, punishments, and incentives that enable us to survive the ever-present threat of internal violence. We usually take the effect of these institutions for granted. Sometimes we even naively assume that we humans are good, and it is the institutions that are causing the violence. But the opposite is true. We are the violent ones. And even when the institutions we create are perpetuating injustice, they are doing it on our behalf and helping us survive our own violence. 
famine and plague weren't even a reality for humanity until we established agricultural societies. Yes, hunter-gatherers could experience food shortages and infections, but the shortages or infectious diseases would not have been widespread enough for what we would call famine or plague. Once a shortage or disease started, the hunter-gatherer society could move to a different area or disperse. On the other hand, in hunter-gatherer societies, the problem of internal violence would have been extreme enough that they could not have survived, without special abilities to manage the tensions. We will talk about these special abilities in a later podcast. But for now, let's just observe that Homo sapiens have the ability to live together and organize in large groups in a way that no other animal species does. Somehow, humanity is uniquely able to manage the ever-present threat of internal community violence. But as we know, humanity has not defeated it, and it is always waiting at the door looking for an opportunity to come in. And often it does come in. I view war as a subset of the problem of internal violence. Firstly, it is human-on-human violence, and therefore it could be considered internal violence. Secondly, war is often the response to the tensions of the more localized community. War is a way to let some pressure off the system. That is, homo sapien communities usually organize themselves according to tribal alliances, by agreeing that we are the good guys and they are the bad guys, it is easier for us to get along. It is a classic political move for leaders whose popularity is waning to stir up a war to rally people to their cause. So war has indeed been a great problem for humanity and a source of immense suffering, but it has also been a critical solution to the broader problem of internal community violence. Also, with regard to famine and plague, we should realize that they always come with the threat of internal violence. Famine and plague put pressure on a community, leading to frustration and social fissures. Conversely, societal breakdown can lead to food shortages and plague even when they wouldn't have happened if everyone was cooperating. Many examples could be cited. World War I and the conditions associated with it led to the Spanish flu. Recent wars in Yemen and Africa have led to famine. When the plague was ravaging Europe in the 14th century, people often blamed it on the Jews. In his papal bull of 1348, Pope Clement chastens Christians for blaming the plague on poisonings carried out by the Jews at the instigation of the devil. The bull goes on to say that this cannot be true, and anyone who captures, strikes, or wounds, or kills any Jews should be excommunicated. Notice how the plague exacerbated the problem of internal violence, and also how our social institutions played a role in holding back the violence. Internal violence, on the other hand, often comes to us all by itself. Our desires are based on imitation, and therefore conflict is always with us. Yes, internal community violence is the biggest threat that humanity has faced and continues to face. Getting back to Harari's book, he notes that when people hear about the implications of our technological development, such as upgraded superhumans, many people want to stop or slow down the development. Harari explains that this is not easy, 
because no one knows where the brakes are. And even if we could find and apply the brakes, our society would collapse because we are dependent on constant growth. For this reason, we need an endless supply of projects, and the quest for immortality, happiness, and divinity are perfect fits. To start this section, Harari tells the story of the day he first came across the Internet in 1993. This story is very relatable because all of us of a certain age have lived through it. I won't tell you Harari's story, but but for me, I was in university at the time, and I can remember some of the grad students using it. I was mostly busy with other things, so I didn't pay too much attention. But gradually the internet became a part of my life as a transformed society. Because we have all lived through disruptive technological developments like this, it makes the conclusion of Harari's book, that technology will continue to transform humanity indefinitely into the future, compelling. We can relate to it. We've seen it before. But it is possible that things will take a different turn. I agree that nobody knows where the brakes are. But if we're headed towards a cliff, we won't necessarily be continuing to move in a forward direction. It'll be more of a downward direction. Or if we are lucky, possibly to the left or to the right. The problem of endless economic growth is an obvious potential cliff. If our society will collapse when growth stops, we have to ask ourselves, is indefinite growth even possible? Or is it more likely that the problems it has created, such as global warming and other environmental degradation, eventually catch up to us? Harari's book notes these problems, but mostly assumes we will somehow bypass them and continue on the path of indefinite growth and technological development. But I am more skeptical about our ability to dodge these problems. Maybe it is because I apply more weight to the problem of internal violence than Harari does that I end up with a different, most likely future. Harari's most likely future is continual technological development, including recreation of humanity, or possibly completely replacing humanity with engineered non-organic beings. My thought is that humanity is on the path of self-destruction. The most likely futures are that we either destroy ourselves or a new humanity emerges that has a better handle on internal violence and is therefore more fit for survival. Certainly self-destruction is a very real possibility. The evidence that suggests this will be our fate is growing every day. But there are other possibilities too. In my intro podcast, I talked about gray wolves. Hopefully it is okay if I quickly repeat that exercise here. Please imagine for a moment that you are a gray wolf about 15,000 years ago. You, along with your partner, are leading a small pack living in a mostly forested region. The main focus of your daily life is ensuring the hunts for deer and other game are successful, and that other wolf packs don't infringe on your territory. If everything goes really well, you will keep this going for a few years, at which point you will no longer be strong enough to defend your territory. In addition to these day-to-day concerns, there is one particularly annoying member of your pack who keeps on following you around. Not only is his over-attachment annoying, you describe him to others as needy, but he keeps on telling you that the way forward for wolves is to become more friendly. That there would come a day when wolves 
as ferocious beasts would be mostly extinct, but wolves as friendly companions would fill the world, often living lives of unimaginable luxury, happiness, and longevity. Would you have believed him? Most likely not. After all, you would have argued, the world doesn't work that way. In the real world, it is the most ferocious hunters that rise to the top. But you would have been wrong. On one hand, your reasoning was sound. However, you failed to consider that this reality was about to be disrupted by the deepening dominance of humans, which was changing everything. Yes, the path of evolution for wolves was heading towards a tipping point. In his book, Harari notes that in Germany today, which is the land of the Grimm Brothers, Little Red Riding Hood, and the Big Bad Wolf, there are less than a hundred wolves, but in contrast it is home to more than five million domestic dogs. Yes, things changed for the wolves. Similarly, the path we are on of increasing technological development is open to disruption. It should be noted that as the intensity and speed of development increases, it produces pressures that make unexpected turns more likely. For millennia, it made sense for wolves to think of themselves as competitors to humans to be the top predator. Even when humans started planting crops, it still made sense. But at some point, the intensification of human technology and agriculture tipped the scales, and everything changed. Similarly, as our technological development advances even farther, it may lead to more surprising disruptions. This time, maybe it is our own evolutionary path that gets disrupted. Harari closes chapter 1 by saying that his book is a historical prediction, not a political manifesto. He claims this prediction is valuable because the insights highlight the implications of our present-day choices. By drawing out potential outcomes of our current trajectory, it gives us more ability to make these choices. And this is the best reason to study history, as it aims, above all, to make us aware of possibilities that we don't normally consider. And this gives us a chance to be liberated from history. I agree with Harari's assessment of his own book. I think it is interesting and valuable the way he draws out the implications of how the world is changing and how little decisions we make every day inevitably lead to dramatic changes. I haven't spent much time thinking about nanotechnology, bioengineering, or cyborg engineering, and I am glad to read his book and learn about how quickly these technologies are becoming a reality. At the same time, though, I am concerned his book may inspire a different response, too. He notes that in an upgraded world of superhumans, you will feel like a Neanderthal hunter in Wall Street. If you are not upgraded, you will not belong. And these enhancements will not be available to everyone. Many will be left behind, and the best model for how those left behind will be treated is how humans treat animals today. I don't know about you, but my emotional reaction to this prediction is fear. I don't want to be left behind. I want to be one of the ones who gets enhanced. And the next step for me is to start thinking about how I can position myself so that I have a good chance of being one of the lucky ones. After all, who wants to be the next Neanderthal? So although I agree with the good things that Harari's book does, I am also concerned that the takeaway 
for many people may be to become more self-centered and less concerned about working together with others to solve humanity's problems. In addition, Harari introduces what he calls a gun that appears in Act 1 to fire in Act 3. This gun is that humanism, which is the religion that helps us all get along and cooperate today, contains the seeds of its own downfall. And Harari provides lots of good analysis to show his readers the inconsistencies and factual errors of humanism, undermining our ability to lean on it to facilitate cooperation. We will develop this idea in later podcasts, but suffice to say that this compounds my concern from above. Firstly, the book gives people more motivation to be in conflict with each other, and then it chips away at the stories we tell each other that enable us to get along. If Harari is right about it all, I need to get over my concerns and just accept it. There is no sense in denying reality because I don't like it. I should admit it, face up to the truth, and try and make the best of it. But as I've been indicating, I think Harari's forecast of super-tech humans is not nearly as likely as it first appears. I think evolution points to a more cooperative and hopeful future, and that is what I'll be focused on in this podcast. So let me summarize what we discussed in Episode 1. It is dangerous to assume that war has been defeated. We are living in a state of conflict with each other. We can see it on the news every night. Therefore, it is more likely than not that world war will break out again at some point. Instead of assuming it will just go away naturally, we need to be actively working for peace. Our desires are based on imitation. This is a key reason we struggle to find enduring happiness. Because our desires are based on imitation, we are constantly in conflict with each other. In most cases, the violence is held in check by our social institutions. But from time to time, our societies melt down and experience more extreme violence. Internal community violence is the greatest threat that humans have faced and continue to face. Famine, plague, and war are secondary threats or subsets of the problem of internal violence. The forces of internal violence never take a day off. And lastly, our society is experiencing accelerated technological development. Nobody knows how to stop it, and if we did somehow stop it, our society would collapse, because all modern societies are dependent on endless growth. This leaves Homo sapiens in a very precarious position. Much more precarious than most people would care to acknowledge or think about. Can technology save us? Or will it save just a few of us? Or is our path of technological development at a tipping point? We will continue to explore these questions throughout the rest of the episodes in this podcast. So please join me for the second episode in this podcast, which focuses on Chapter 2 of Harari's book, The Anthropocene that is, the age of man. In chapter 2, Harari points out how the world is now populated mainly by humans and their domesticated animals. Wild animals exist only on the margins, and many of them have gone or are going extinct. Harari talks about the agricultural deal 
and explains how theistic religions arose to help early farmers justify the domestication of animals. On the other hand, I will argue that many aspects of Homo sapien religion did not change in the agricultural revolution. We will explore these unchanged aspects and try and figure out what it tells us about Homo sapiens. <laughs>